I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, that was exciting. <laughs> was uh, it? Like a, no, it was, well, it was, I mean, there was like uh, an air of tension. Okay. So I guess that's, there's some excitement there. Mm-hmm. We sat down to record and- uh, <laughs> Like three hours ago. Yeah, and my laptop just turned off. And I was like, that's weird. And I turned it back on, and it was like, hey, I'm on now. And then it let out this crazy, this beeping sound like I'd never heard. It was like a fire alarm. Yes, it was very loud. And then it just shut off. And I was like, what the hell is happening? (sighs) Terrifying. Had to do some computer surgery. Uh, It was just a fan stuck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the laptop was like, I I, I can't. I can't, the fan's not working. Ah! I'm going to freak out because if I run with that, I could burst into flames. So it kind of was a fire alarm. Oh, well, I, guess, I, I guess I'm glad it was loud then if it was going to burst into flames. Yeah. I need to know that. <laughs> well, it seemed, fingers crossed, it's working. I hope we get uh, through, I hope this. through this. <laughs> what a week. I got yeah, jury right? duty. Damn. The Emmy nominations came out. True. Well, we got a story to get to. Oh, my God. Such this, a good one, too. Before this laptop crashes. Oh, knock shit. on wood. Shit. But, yes, I'm very excited about this episode. This turned out to be a very fun story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to thank Simon um, at 
Chinguetti one on Instagram who sent us this suggestion yeah. like several months ago. So been waiting a while. Thanks, Simon. This was a really good one. Uh-huh. And as I told Simon, fair warning, half the reason I was excited about this is because it takes place in Australia and New Zealand, which means we get to stun everyone with our terrible accents oh. from that region. <laughs> and I cannot wait. Hey, I, mine might be pretty good. I don't okay, know. I well, haven't tried it yet. Mine is terrible. So <laughs> mine will be terrible. Eli's might be. Happy it won't be good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't overdo it. We won't overdo it. No. Okay, so Agnes Ottaway, always called Nessie by her family, lived in the South Otago Coast in New Zealand, working at her parents' boarding house for travelers. She was around 32 years old and still single when a distinguished guest came to stay, a rich, dapper 49-year-old man named Percival Leonard Carroll Redwood. Ooh. He was charming and generous, and best of all, he seemed very taken with Nessie. Only a few weeks after they met, Nessie and Percy were engaged. But some things about Percy were not adding up, and people all over town were getting suspicious. So let's find out the deal with Percy and the surprising things he was hiding under the surface. So curious. Let's go. Yeah. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Percy had come from Dunedin. He made a lot of friends there. In a 1909 article from the Evening Star, one Dunedin resident said about Percy, quote, He was an all right chap. He had plenty of money. And if you wanted anything, he was the boy to buy it for you. What the fuck? Where am I from? <laughs> By way of Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens every time. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. We went to the theater with him, and he would have been quite disappointed if my wife and daughter had not gone with him. My daughter once said, <laughs> It's gone. It's friend? gone. Just, keep, just finish the quote. I can't do it. My daughter once said she liked apples, and he had a box sent to her. I once said I would like a parakeet, and he said he would get one for me from his uncle in Melbourne. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> That took like 45 minutes. What a world traveler this person is. <laughs> I know, he's from everywhere. <laughs> and then a cab driver chipped in to add, and he told me he'd get me a Persian cat. <laughs> so anyway, he took this generous attitude with him to Nugget Point, showing up dressed to the nines and throwing around money like it was going out of style. And he stayed at Albion House, the boarding house operated by Mr. and Mrs. George Ottaway and their daughter, Nessie. Ah, uh, Nessie. Now, everything about this guy, Percy, was legit. He was the nephew of an archbishop. His mother was a wealthy widow who lived on a sheep farm in Hamilton. And he bought gifts and bestowed favors indiscriminately, just left and right. Mm -hmm. You'll get a favor. You'll get a favor. Here's a fancy gift for you. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Parakeet? Apples? <laughs> One resident said that Percy was, quote, the essence of all that was good and kind, and he appeared to have to do good for other people. His affability and obliging nature made us all like him. <laughs> Having established himself so well in Nugget Point, it was no problem for any of the residents to do him a good turn as well. When Percy confessed that he'd lost his wallet on a fishing trip and he was all cleaned out, one lady offered him her life 
savings until he could have the money sent from his wealthy mom. Several other people felt compelled to give Percy loans, sometimes as much as 30 pounds, which uh, in modern New Zealand bucks is worth 3,804 pounds today. That's a big loan. Now, maybe the people of Nugget Point were also eager to help with the romance they could see was brewing between Nessie and Percy, because it wasn't long after Percy arrived at Albion House that sparks started to fly. And after only a few weeks, Percy popped the question. Now, Nessie's parents, the Ottaways, knew that Nessie was going to come into some money at some point, so they need to be pretty careful about her suitors. You know, you don't want any fortune hunters sniffing around. Right, sure. But all their fears were laid to rest when Mrs. Ottaway got a very gratifying letter from Percy's mother, who wrote, quote, I have just had a talk over the marriage with my boys, and I'm going to town to see my lawyer. We have decided to give him £3,500, and I will give him another £1,000 for the house and furniture as he wishes to live in Dunedin. Yours very sincerely, Francis Redwood. Hey, not bad. Hey, thank you. (laughs) Even better, another letter arrived from Mrs. Ottaway from the Auckland Drainage Board, informing her that the secretary of the board was retiring and would hire Percy to replace him for a salary of seven pounds a week. Wow. Now that is 887 pounds a week today. Oh, Pretty wow. Pretty good salary. In, in U.S. dollars, it's like 60 cents to a New Zealand dollar today. So it's oh, that's wow. still like, yeah, that's it's like 700 bucks or something. I mean, I would take it. Yeah. So this couple would be financially set for life, and there's no reason to keep Nessie away from this guy. In fact, Mrs. Ottaway trusted him so much that when Percy wrote to a law firm to get a mortgage against the horses and sheep that he owned, she offered her own house as security on this loan. Wow. Because the lawyer had been a little suspicious of Percy, so he'd, like, come out, and Percy had to, like, name all his cattle and tell him his identifying marks and everything. And Percy did all that. (laughs) Which is funny because I'm like, did you have a picture of them? And yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he does he's have just a little like, spot on his ear. <laughs> oh, you've got sheep, do ya? Well, tell me 16 of their names. And he's like, uh, Jameson, Coyle, Frederick, Michael, Jameson, two, 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 two uh, Philip, <laughs> Reese, Tyka. You know, and they're like, oh, wow, okay, well, you named those pretty quickly, so. Pretty good. I assume you have those sheep. They must be yours. Two Jamesons. And did he have a roll call or something? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, once the lawyer had this valuable boarding house as collateral, you know, it was all good. The mortgage went through. Percy's okay. swimming in cash again. And so the wedding date was set for April 21st, 1909. Okay, so Percy shows up in town, uh, stays at this place, and falls in love with the girl. Mm-hmm. Her parents uh, say... We're not so sure about this guy. And he just starts producing letters. Well, here, Tons this proves proof. who I am. This mm-hmm. proves who I am. And they're like, damn, okay, well, let me put up my house as collateral for your loan then. Yeah, this guy's great. He's so trustworthy. I mean, he would never do anything to hurt anybody. Okay. He just seemed like such a lovely guy. So it, why not? It's given me Music Man vibes. <gasps> Sure, you know, guy sure. shows up. I'm the music man. We the got monorail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pool tables. Uh-huh. So for this wedding, Percy spared no expense either. He gave Nessie a ring with five diamonds in it. There were 200 guests. That's almost as big as our wedding, <laughs> uh, including the local member of parliament, who we did not get at our wedding. I know, right? Uh, Rude. We invited all of parliament and none of them came. <laughs> 
Nessie had 10 bridesmaids, and after the ceremony, everyone sat down to a lavish wedding feast, complete with limitless Reims champagne. Ooh, Percy, fancy. I know, right? Legit champagne. We did not have that. Nope. <laughs> we had nope. Tito's vodka. <laughs> I was about to say, I think. And, like maybe Jameson, Jameson. yeah. <laughs> but a lot of it. Oh. Um, Percy had bought an extravagant cake. He had fancy suits and silver-backed hairbrushes for his bride. It was the social event of the year. But the residents of Nugget Point had another reason to be excited about this wedding. Remember all those loans Percy had gotten? Everyone was like, oh, here, young man, take my life savings until you can pay me back. Don't worry about it. You're such a nice guy. Here's Uh (laughs) $3,000. Well, nobody had been paid back yet. People were kind of starting to chatter. Mm-hmm. Whispers were growing. And Percy swore, my mother's going to be at this wedding. She'll pay everybody back. Don't worry about it. Uh, so the guests had gotten dressed and ready for this party, expecting that they would come home with all their money. What a wedding gift. I mean, amazing. But when they arrived at the wedding, several important seats were empty. Mm. What was going on? Uh, where's Mrs. Percy? Okay. Where's the old rich lady? Where's my money? Where is the Redwood family? Uh-huh. Well, of course, Percy had an answer. You see, his sister was also getting married that exact same day. Calendar shenanigans. Very rude. <laughs> so his family hadn't been able to come after all. And again, flashing back to our wedding, we waited a whole extra year so okay. we wouldn't be near your brother's wedding. That's right. I don't know what's wrong with this sister. <laughs> but... Don't worry, everybody, Percy told them. My mother's going to be here in a week. Mm -hmm. She'll have your money then. Everything's going to be fine. So everybody's kind of side-eyeing each other. Oh, what's going on with this money? All right, all right. He says a week. They don't say anything. And the wedding went forward. Mm -hmm. But Nessie's dad, George Ottaway, he stayed suspicious. He was like, oh, this mom didn't turn up, and I don't know. So he insisted that the married couple stay in separate rooms until Percy's financial bona fides could be confirmed. Okay. Once Percy's mom got there and paid everybody's debts, great, you can consummate your union. But until then, it's a cold bachelor's bed for you, Percy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, That Uh, was New Zealand by way of Chicago, (laughs) I think. He's a very no-nonsense guy, okay? (laughs) Now, Percy was fine with this arrangement. He went up to bed. uh, He shared a room with one of his groomsmen who was very surprised when Percy climbed into bed to go to sleep that night, fully dressed in his wedding suit. But it was like, whatever. Weird guy, whatever. Lots of grooms have fallen asleep in their tuxedos. So true. But George was far from the only suspicious one. A couple of family friends had actually, like, written to people they knew in Hamilton, and they were like, hey, can you find this Redwood widow lady that we keep hearing so much about? Mm -hmm. And She's got my money. (laughs) I know. She owes me some money, so I'm Uh kind of interested. And nobody could find any trace of a woman with that name. So people started to talk to the police. And as the details of Percy's behavior emerged, one detective, Detective Henry Hunt, felt his ears prick up. Overly complicated situations involving a lot of unpaid debts and a bunch of letters? This was familiar stuff! So Detective Hunt went straight to Albion House and asked for Percy. Down the stairs, Percy came, pipe in his mouth, full suit on, looking sharp. Detective Hunt was not fooled for an instant. He said, quote, the game's up, Amy. Amy? 
Uh, uh, who the fuck is Amy? Amy? What is happening? <laughs> yeah, let's find out the real story of Percy Redwood right after this commercial break. Yeah. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome back to the show! <laughs> <laughs> 
You're really going for I'm it. Not, I can't. <laughs> I'm so bad at these. Uh, P.S. Unrelated. If anyone's a dialect coach, <laughs> send your information to. There's dialect coaches out there going, right? I, I'm like, not taking this job. No. This, this, <laughs> There's nothing I can do like for you. <laughs> the greatest challenge I've ever faced. And I'm, I don't have the energy. Uh, you can't afford me. Yeah, I know. yeah right. <laughs> the hours. The hours. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody. Yes, our friend Percy is actually a woman named Amy Maud Bach. And she's been called one of the most celebrated and energetic confidence tricksters in New Zealand history. Ooh. She was born in 1859 in Hobart, Tasmania. Her father was a photographer and an artist named Alfred Bach. And unfortunately, her mother, Mary Ann, suffered from a serious mental illness. In 1867, the family moved to Sale, Victoria, and her mother seems to become more delusional. She thought that she was Lady Macbeth, according to historian Jenny Coleman in her book, Mad or Bad, The Life and Exploits of Amy Bach. Mm -hmm. uh, Coleman thinks that Mary Ann Bach possibly had bipolar disorder. She was committed to an asylum, and she died in 1872. Now, as a young girl in school, Amy was... Yeah, she was bright, she was clever, she was mm -hmm. popular even, and she was an accomplished horsewoman and pianist, and she was a great actor. Mm -hmm. She even played male roles on stage several times in school plays, but her love of thieving got started early. In a statement to the police, Amy told them that as a kid, she loved buying a bunch of books on credit under her dad's name and then just giving them away all over town. <laughs> when her dad found out that he was on the hook for all these books, he told her to quit it, which she said, quote, only increased my desire to get things without his knowing. Mm. It made her dad afraid that she'd inherited her mother's instability. Yeah. Uh, apparently also she once passed herself off as the daughter of a wealthy family and she ordered several coffins from a string of funeral directors all delivered to a family who had no bodies to bury, which is one of the best pranks I've ever heard. Incredible prank. And I was like, <laughs> is she trying to say, like, I wish you were dead? <laughs> like, what is she saying? It's just so weird. That's what I love about uh, it. Yeah, like, they just woke up. You just up. imagine the people who open the door and there's like seven coffins. They're like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? That's hilarious. I'm just saying that's the funniest joke. <laughs> I want to know more. Like, were they varying sizes? Were right. they all the same, like, wood? Like, what was, did she have a one fancy one and one plain box? And, like, <laughs> they had to fight over it. Now, in 1876, when she was about 17, Amy left her father's house to become the only teacher at a rural school in Gippsland, right outside of Melbourne. But she was frequently absent, claiming she was too sick to come in. And twice, inspectors found out that she was falsely inflating her school attendance records because her salary was based on how many students she had in the classroom. Oh. So she would just, like, add a few names to oh. the wall. <laughs> don't forget Jameson and Jameson, too. And don't forget. Yeah, don't. <laughs> She also used her status as a schoolteacher to get a line of credit, which she used to run up a bunch of debt. Mm -hmm. She stole two watches from a jeweler in Melbourne by pretending that her brother was giving the watches a gift and he wanted to, like, choose between oh. these two wa watches. <laughs> and, of course, she had a letter from the brother explaining oh, sure, the situation. Oh, sure, sure. And it apparently was not an unusual thing to do at the time. Uh -huh. So the jeweler's like, sure, go off with the watches and let me know. And then, of course, of course, she failed to come back. Oh, with, right. <laughs> uh, 
either of the watches or any payment, so the jeweler contacted the police. And since she had used her real name, it was not very hard to track her down. Mm. Investigating further, they found that she had also bought two carriages, a piano, and multiple pieces of furniture on credit, which she then sold. Wow. And then she tried to get out of paying by forging a bunch of letters from a fake sister named Ethel (laughs) claiming that Amy had died. Oh, my God. (laughs) Dear Inspector, please stop looking for my sister. Turns out she's dead. Sincerely, Ethel. I'm looking at her right now. She is in one of the many coffins that she sent. (laughs) Not worth your time searching for her. Might as well stop. (laughs) Detective's like, well, okay. I mean, someone said she's dead. I'm not going to waste my time. (laughs) So in 1884, she's arrested on charges of fraud. This is her first arrest. Okay. However, the court decided that because of her family history of her mother's mental illness, Mm. Amy was not responsible for her own actions. Oh, okay. And so she was discharged without a conviction. Um, She was pledged to good behavior for 12 months. And her dad convinced her to move with him to Auckland, New Zealand, where he was living with his new wife, a woman who, by the way, was only one year older than Amy. Oh, boy. And it wasn't easy to live with her dad and her new same-age stepmom. Mm, we've seen that before. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so she struck out on her own after only a couple of months at home. In May of 1855, she was arrested again for obtaining one pound and concert tickets on false pretenses. Like, speculation station, what are the false pretenses that get you concert tickets? Right. Is it like right. a make-a-wish thing? Like, she's <laughs> like, I'm very sick and I'm about to die. I'd love nothing more than right. to see this band before I die. Or was it? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. Wow, that would make her a bad <laughs> person. Bad. Yeah, I think that's bad. Or what if it's just, uh, I'm the manager. I'm oh, the maybe, band's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm in the band, actually. Oh, so can I okay. get a couple tickets? I want a contest. For my brother, Jameson, and my sister, Jameson, too. Wow. Okay. Well, she was again found not responsible for her actions for these concert tickets, and Mm -hmm. she was released. She moved to Littleton on the east coast of New Zealand and became a governess for some family friends. Now, eight months go by, no problems, Mm -hmm. no arrests, no theft, nothing. But then in 1886, she informed her employers that she had just inherited a large sum of money. And when they told her they didn't believe her, because, of course, they were family friends. They probably knew a lot of her history. (laughs) Oh, Amy. She got offended and she quit. And she bought some stuff on credit, probably sold it illegally. Mm -hmm. And she took off to Wellington. The thing is about Amy, she does not try hard to cover her tracks. So she was quickly found, arrested again, and brought back, this time to Christchurch, for trial. And in this trial, they decided... Oh, we don't care about your family history. (laughs) And they threw the book at her. She was sentenced to one month's hard labor and imprisonment. She gets out, goes back to Wellington. She gets a job teaching at the Otaki Maori Boys College. Okay. Almost immediately, she starts obtaining goods (laughs) through false pretenses again. Her favorite thing, using most of her ill-gotten gains... To, it must be said, buy books for her students. Oh. That's kind of cool. A little bit of a Robin Hood action here. A bit here. of a Robin Hood, yeah. yeah. And it isn't long before she's found out again. She goes back to court for fraud, and she gets six months' detention. Oh, boy. But while she's in jail, the warden is so impressed by her manners and social skills, he offers her a job teaching other inmates. Oh, okay. Nice. 
things are going teaching great. Teaching them what? I know, right? Uh-oh. I guess manners and social skills. Right, yeah. <laughs> Let me teach you how to forge a check. <laughs> now, things are going great. Until the warden finds out that Amy is trying to secure her release from jail by forging a bunch of letters from a supportive but completely fictional aunt. (laughs) Dear warden, my sweet niece Amy doesn't deserve to be in jail. She's so kind and giving and loving. Actually, the letters were to Amy from her aunt. okay. And they were very, like, they were like, oh, Amy, how could you? You're always, (laughs) I wish that God could solve your problems, but I'm an invalid and I can't come visit you. See if they'll bring you to me. And they were like, oh, she's trying to, like, give us the slip on the way some some fake place or whatever. (laughs) Dear (laughs) Amy, ask the warden very nicely to put you in a carriage with no guards. All alone. Tell him I said it's a very smart idea. (laughs) (laughs) Signed, your very trustworthy aunt. Jameson, too. Jameson, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in 1888, she got released. She started teaching music. But only a few months later, she landed in court again for her favorite, obtaining goods on false pretenses. At that trial, Amy explained she couldn't help herself. Mm -hmm. When she said when she was teaching in Melbourne, she managed to keep, quote, the malady at bay because she really loved her work. But then she had a personal tragedy. She was engaged to a childhood friend who died tragically after being thrown from his horse. And her emotions were high and she was grieving and that's what made her steal again. Okay. She asked at this trial to be committed to a lunatic asylum because she said, you know, I inherited this mental instability and kleptomania from my mother. However, according to an 1888 article called Alleged Kleptomania in the Otago Daily Times, the judge was quoted as saying, We cannot give any support or show any favor to kleptomania. It would never do to countenance it. If we did, a good many people would soon be found to think that they were suffering with that disease. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon they'll all be doing it. <laughs> wow. So he's worried that people are just going to start stealing, going to court and say, Sorry, oh. Your Honor, it's the kleptomania. I know, right? <laughs> wow. I'll I'll say that's not a fair reason. No. To not give people with, you know, mental health issues. Well, if we start giving you okay. the things you need to survive, then soon everyone will want them. That's what I was just like. <laughs> there's so many ways to tell if somebody stole because they stole. Yeah. And if they stole because it's a compulsion. Right. There's so many ways. But of course, it's 1888. Yeah. I'm not sure their mental yeah. health stuff was great. But up to this point, they've been very forgiving and soft on this particular criminal. I will say I feel that the sentences match the crimes. You know, she steals a pound here, you know, 30 pounds here and there. And then she works it off and then she gets to get out instead of like, you're a thief. So we're going to put you in jail for the rest of your life. They're like, why not go out and, you know, pay some taxes? Yeah. (laughs) At the same time, though, they're they're going to Uh, proponents of more harsh sentencing are going to point to her and say, see, every time you let her out, she just did it again. It's so true. She Uh, was a repeat offender for sure. Yeah. Well, she needed a different kind of help. It's so true. So, well, anyway, this this judge did not want to say anything about kleptomania or whatever mental instability. He's like, you're a thief. That's all I need to know. So she got two months in jail this time. In 1889, she gets out. She moved to Akaroa on Banks Peninsula. And she got a job as a governess, and she stole some shit again. (laughs) 
Her long record was working against her now. She got six months for larceny and false pretenses. When she got out in 1890, she moved to Dunedin and she forged a letter from a woman named Lucinda Edgar saying that Ida Bennett was the absolute best housekeeper, governess, and companion a person could wish for. Then she went and posed as this Ida Bennett, and she used this letter from Lucinda Edgar mm -hmm. to get a job as a housekeeper at Mr. Cox's house. An 1890 article from the Otago Witness called, quote, an artful schemer, lays out her whole con here from start to finish. First, she forges the fake reference, the letter from Lucinda Edgar saying Ida Bennett's the best. Once she had the job, she went to a moneylender and she said there was a piano at Mr. Cox's house that belonged to her. And since her brother was in desperate financial straits, she wanted to borrow some money against this piano. The moneylender was like, oh, no problem. I'll write you out a bill of sale right now. But a bill of sale would be registered and that would, you know, let Mr. Cox know what was going on here. So she was like, oh no, I don't want Mr. Cox to find out about this. He would turn me out of the house if he knew. But I do have a wealthy friend named Mrs. Lucinda Edgar living in Burnside who will be willing to sign a promissory note pledging to pay it all back. Is that okay? And the Monday lender's like, sure, uh, Lucinda Edgar, she sounds very wealthy. I'll accept that. <laughs> no problem. Uh, and she ended up getting 21 pounds from him. Which again, it's quite a bit of money back yeah. then. And then she told Mr. Cox that her dear friend, Mrs. Lucinda Edgar, was really sick and not expected to live. Oh, no. So she was going to go stay with her for a few days. And she left him a letter like, I know I'm leaving and that sucks of me and you've been so good to me. And if you need to hire someone new, I completely understand. But I hope that you'll be good and kind enough to keep my position open when I come back. Uh -huh. Well, Mr. Cox is starting to get a little suspicious. He's like, this lady's crazy. So he asks around Burnside and he discovers there's no such person as Mrs. Lucinda Edgar living there. What? So the cops get called. Amy's tracked down. And again, thanks to her long record of previous convictions, she's given the maximum sentence, three years penal servitude. Wow. But she gets a few months taken off for good behavior. So the whole scheme was just, I'm going to get a loan and put this piano up as collateral. Yep. And the, uh, all that went into this, this whole fake identity, this Many job. letters. She probably had to work for the guy for quite a while, you know? Definitely. <laughs> and, like, I, I think, too, there were times where they would go talk to the postman in wherever these cities were, like Burnside. Uh -huh. They would go to the Burnside postmaster and be like, hey, you got a letter for Lucinda Edgar? And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't know anyone by that name, so we returned all the letters. Which, of course, meant they went to Amy, so she was able to respond right. as the fake person. <laughs> anyway, it's just insane the amount of letters. Like, they, they talk about huge piles of letters that she would write in uh -huh. order to, like, keep her frauds going. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> God. It feels like the, ex the extreme hyper version of, like, when middle school kids... Like, you know, forge a note. Oh, he's mm -hmm. sick. He can't. And then some, they get their friend with a deep voice to answer the phone. Yes. Oh, yes. This is Mr. Jameson. My son is very sick today. <laughs> can't come to school. Poor Jameson, too. <laughs> so Amy gets out of prison in 1892. She moves to Timaru, where she promptly pretends to be a wealthy tourist <laughs> who lost her pocketbook. <laughs> she borrows one pound off a school principal 
which again, that's worth about 126 pounds today. So okay. she's borrowing quite a, a <laughs> sum from this like total stranger. And then she disappears. Wow. And she was quickly caught and sentenced to a month in prison. And she told the judges that she did it because she was really upset that her father had died. Uh-huh. Except her father was alive and living in <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> so maybe that story about her childhood love who fell off his horse yeah. that we talked about earlier. Right. Maybe we don't believe that story uh, either. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not so sure, sure. <laughs> that there ever was a guy who fell off a horse. <laughs> wow. In 1893, she pawned her landlady's husband's watch, and then she committed several other small thefts. She ended up once again in prison, this time for six months. Once she got out, she moved to Amaru and claimed to have come into a big inheritance that she wanted to use to buy a six-room house to rent out. That's the second big inheritance, uh-huh. quote-unquote. She borrowed several times from a furniture seller, telling him she was planning to spend 75 pounds furnishing this house. She applied for an official membership to the Salvation Army, but they found out about her record and they said they wouldn't accept her until she'd proven that she'd changed her ways. So... Obviously, her next step was to defraud several Salvation (laughs) Army members out of 30 shillings, which is like a little over a pound, by selling them tickets to a fake event. (laughs) Oh, you want me to prove I changed my ways? Tell you what, I got some great tickets to go see the Jamesons tonight. Let me show you my stripes. (laughs) (laughs) So she ran off to Palmerston, but was arrested there, brought back, and sentenced this time to four months' hard labor. She gets out, and in 1895, once again, she gets imprisoned very quickly after for not paying her room and board. Damn, she's just a jack-in-the-box with these prisons, man. She is in in and and out. out. Revolving door. Now, when she was released at that point, she was sent to live in a house in Christchurch, New Zealand, for fallen women, you know, that was run Uh, by Catholics. Okay. Even though she had never really been accused or suspected of, like, promiscuous behavior. Okay. But they just figured, you know what, you need somebody to keep an eye on you because you're a hot mess. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And there is no record of her time at this house, but for nearly five years, she did not re-offend. So whatever they were doing there, maybe it helped out some way, somehow. Okay. She could not scam the nuns. She couldn't, couldn't bring the nuns herself. like slapping her. Yeah, wrist. they were too quick. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they, because they didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. You know, they take a vow of poverty. So it's right. like, there's nothing to steal. So I guess I'll just cook and hang out. I don't know. Sister Mary, I got a letter from my aunt who says <laughs> you need to give me everything in your pockets. Like, I, I got a letter from God right here. <laughs> you sit here and read it. But then in 1901, she posed as Miss Sherwin, got a job as a housekeeper accumulated large debts, and then left town and faked Miss Sherwin's death to get out of repaying. Wow. And then in 1902, she landed in Christchurch again under the name of Mary Shannon. And she made friends with a well-known gardener. She, like, stayed at his house and stuff like that. And she started collecting money from all his friends to invest in her entirely fake poultry farm. (laughs) In a 1903 article from the Evening Post called Remarkable Female Swindler, it says, quote, she would supply exact figures of capital and interest, terms of mortgage and repayment, etc., with as much minuteness of detail as a London financier would display. Wow. So she was very good at maintaining a guise of respectability mm-hmm. and everything. Um, this article also details another swindle, 
where she basically, she just knew the name of this lady who lived in a country township, and she knew this lady's son was involved at this bank. And then she also knew the name of a tradesman in Wellington who knew this lady. So she just conjures up a story out of her imagination, and she shows up at this tradesman's place with a letter from the lady saying, oh, my son has some money missing from his account. Would you send the missing 20 pounds to me by way of this messenger? (laughs) And the tradesman... (laughs) And the tradesman immediately paid it. Oh, my God. Amy rides off into the sunset, and the article goes on to say, quote, he was so sensitive about the way he had been taken in that he never prosecuted for this offense. Oh, wow, yeah. So apparently Amy got away with several of her crimes because people were too embarrassed to go to the cops and were like, yeah, for some reason I decided to pay this total fucking stranger a bunch of money for nothing. Very convincing letter. Okay, but this letter... (laughs) (laughs) You don't understand this letter. So well written. Uh, I'm just going to eat that 20 pounds. I deserved it. (laughs) Wow. But with this poultry farm swindle... People were not afraid to go to the police this Uh -uh. time. She got three years hard labor, but again, got some time shaved off for good behavior. She was released in 1904, and she went to live at a Salvation Army house in Rakaia, and she found work as a housekeeper under the name Amy Chanel. Until February 1905, she was accused of forging a check. Now, uncharacteristically, Amy denied doing this. Mm -hmm. Usually she confessed right away. She always pled guilty in court. This time she said it wasn't her. Makes me feel like it probably wasn't. I know she's a liar, but like she was so frequently honest about her crimes that I'm like, why would she lie this one time? Well, whether she was really responsible this time or not, her record did work against her and she was sentenced to three more years in prison. Damn. Once again, Time shaved off for good behavior. She was released in two and a half years. It's just the same cycle over Mm -hmm. and over again. Constant. She pops up again in 1907 when she became friends with a children's theater company and traveled with them to Dunedin. And she did have to commit a number of small frauds on the way in order to maintain her guise as a patron of this company. Right. Like, can you donate some money today? And she's like, uh, give me a few minutes to write a letter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've got this letter from my uncle saying he's about to cut you a huge check. He says the best thing for you to do right now, actually, uh, it says in the letter here that you should give me 30 pounds. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when he shows up next week, he's going to give it back to you. Yeah, no problem. That makes sense to me. All right. Now in Dunedin, she posed as Agnes Valance and in 1908 got a job as a housekeeper to a nice family called the Roys. Mm. And they loved her just like everyone did at all her past jobs. Mm. I mean, just like Percy. She's very charming. She's a lovely person. They're like, we trust you. You're just a doll. You know what I mean? So when the Roys left for their Christmas trip in December, they felt safe leaving everything in Agnes's capable hands. Mm. And she immediately forged a receipt from Mr. Roy (laughs) saying he had sold all his furniture to her and then turned around and used the furniture as collateral for a 30-pound loan she got under the name Charlotte Skevington. Skevington? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Amazing. Well, of course, when the Roys returned and found out that all their furniture had basically been sold, A warrant was put out for Amy's arrest in January of 1909. But by then, Amy had found the perfect disguise. Mm. Percival Leonard Carroll Redwood. 
As Percy, she stayed at a respectable boarding house in Dunedin. And just like at Nugget Point, everyone loved Percy. She got several people to loan her money, including a cab driver, which is that guy who was expecting to get a Persian cat from her that we talked about earlier. (laughs) Um, That guy gave her 30 pounds. Wow. Another unnamed young lady gave her another 40 pounds. So she was just a lot of money from these guys. And at this point, Amy had been imprisoned 13 times for a total of 16 years and two months. Wow. All those little sentences really added up. Right. And that is the Percy who showed up at Nugget Point to steal money and Nessie Ottaway's heart. So let's find out what happened with that right after this commercial break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts, It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. 
So follow the seven right now. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome back, everybody. Well, by now, Amy, of course, had a reputation with the police, mm-hmm. probably in every city in New Zealand and Australia. I think I think she might have lived in every city in New it Zealand feels at this like point. It. <laughs> Her reputation, firstly, was of being curiously moral. Hmm. Like she almost always gave away her ill-gotten gains, particularly to young female servants, according to Jenny Coleman. Since her motive was rarely monetary gain, kind of lends a lot of credence to her claims that she had some kind of compulsion or mania, maybe. Yeah, I think so. In that alleged kleptomania article from the Otago Daily Times, she's quoted as telling the police, quote, You will see for yourself if you look into the case that nothing I got has been for myself. The temptation has always been give, give, never mind where you got the things, you can pay for them by and by. So I wonder if she even sometimes thinks in her head, I will pay this guy back later. Right. Yeah, I don't know that there's a lot of malice to her actions. Yeah. Um, Well, and what what does she convince herself Exactly, yeah. She's got a whole different perception. uh, Tell this guy about my aunt out of town, but you know what? I'll just, I'll swindle the money out of somebody else and I'll pay him back with that. I was about to say. You know, she just gets herself into a pattern maybe. Yeah, it's like borrowing from Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. Uh She just... Past the swindle along. I wonder if the, if she if she did do that ever. You wouldn't hear about it because those people wouldn't have reported got it. Paid. Yeah, very true. Huh. I wonder. Well, she also had a distinguishable pattern to her cons that the police were starting to recognize. In Remarkable Female Swindler, they write, quote, Her stories lacked nothing in plausibility, and she imported into them a wealth of natural detail. This, however, was not altogether an advantage, as her work was so peculiarly her own that the police could generally recognize it. Thus, as is not uncommon with great artists, she sometimes suffered through her task being too well done. Damn, she was so good they knew it was her. That London financier shit. Uh They're like, oh, as soon as we find a really complex scheme, pretty sure it's Amy. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when Detective Hunt, who was on Amy's case for the Dunedin furniture fraud, heard about all these fake relatives, forged letters, small loans, and unfulfilled promises, he could smell Amy all over it. Uh, Do you think whenever he was about to crack a case, he looked up and said, the hunt is on? I hope so. (laughs) You know, he's got to. Maybe he, as a kid, he was like, well, my name's Henry Hunt, so... I guess I have to either become a hunter or a detective. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I could either hunt animals or, or the people. most dangerous game. <laughs> <laughs> if only he'd been around when TV was a thing. He could have had his own True. show on the hunt. On the hunt with Henry Hunt. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm ready. So Detective Hunt went to the boarding house in Dunedin where Percy had been staying and he found women's clothes in Percy's room. And he's like, okay, that's some clue. And then he showed a picture of Amy to people in Dunedin who knew her only as Percy. And they were able to immediately identify, yeah. oh, that's Percy. So he took himself off to Nugget Point and arrested Amy for fraud. 
From an article in the 1909 Evening Star called Amy Bach's Latest Escapade, it says, quote, Miss Ottaway is said to be sick in bed after the news was broken to her. No surprise there. Mm-hmm. Although her father, George, is quoted as saying, well, it could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Eh, the guy was a girl, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> At least she wasn't marrying an actor. You know, I mean, like... <laughs> ugh, gross. <laughs> could have been worse. Maybe it would have been worse if she had been legally married to an actual, like, con man. So he was like, at least she's, you know, we're going to get this marriage annulled and there's no harm done or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) But that's just such a funny quote Uh, to be. I see George, like, not even looking up from his newspaper. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Good (laughs) worse. I knew there was something off about him. Now, Amy, as usual, confessed immediately. She's just like, I see you know everything. I'll go right with you. And she went quietly with Detective Hunt to jail. He said, the game is up, Amy. And, and she, she said, goes, oh, up. sure is. <laughs> I guess it is now. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, Detective Hunt, good to see you again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're still on this? So, okay, why? Why this elaborate con? Why Why fake this whole romance with Nessie and propose and go right, through and this whole wedding and everything? propose. Yeah. Now, some people today have suggested that Amy might be a lesbian or even a trans man, but there's really not much evidence to support that. She never intended to stay with Nessie after the marriage. In fact, she planned to leave for Melbourne for their honeymoon and shake Nessie off along the way and then leave her a note explaining the whole sham. Wow. <laughs> which, you know, in in which case she would have abandoned her in Melbourne, you know, in a strange town without her Well, husband. on the way to Melbourne, not even. It could have been right. somewhere totally random. And <laughs> poor Nessie would have been like, well, how am I supposed to get home? All I got is letter finding out my husband's a lady. I don't know what is going on. But in addition to that, the only time that she ever dressed as a man was to commit fraud or hide from the consequences of her fraud. Right. So Jenny Coleman thinks that it's more likely that this was just the thrill of the con for Amy. Like, how far she could take it, how far she could be believed, you know, like an extreme sport for her almost. Yeah. You know, I wonder if I could, I wonder if I could convince a woman to marry me as this guy. For real, you know? I, I imagine that Nessie maybe got a little flirtatious at some point, and Percy, you know, she's like, as Percy, she's uh-huh. like, hmm, wow, my disguise is working great. I kind of want to see how far I could go. I could get and all the way to a dowry with okay, this. Okay, eventually she's like, what if I asked her to marry me? Wouldn't that be so funny? Hey, girl, would you marry me? And she's like, okay. Oh, shit. <laughs> she said, yes. Damn, this right. girl is dumb. I guess we're having a wedding. I don't know when I'm going to have to take off my clothes, <laughs> right. but we'll see. Right. I guess I'm sleeping in my tuxedo. All right. <laughs> Which, by the way, how lucky, or do you think it was even her suggestion? Like, well, you know, uh, I haven't proved my money yet, so maybe you should make us sleep in separate rooms. I wondered that, too. I I don't know if it was her suggestion or if she was just super relieved that he suggested that. I like to think. Speculation Station, she went to the dad and said... How how dare you let an unproven man with open debts stay in the same room as your daughter? I wouldn't want a father-in-law like you. And he was like, oh, my, go- my goodness. All right, well, then you, you better sleep in separate rooms. No, well, Percy, yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> Percy, I'd hate to disappoint you. <laughs> Whatever you want, Percy. <laughs> You're such a stand-up guy. <laughs> And again, in addition to all this behavior, her schemes never really benefited her or sometimes even anyone. Yeah. Like those coffins. (laughs) Nobody got anything out of that. It's just hilarious. (laughs) Just the thrill of the lie for Amy, you know, figuring out the story, acting the part, just trying to see what she can get away with. 
rather than, you know, the stuff or the money that she got out of it sometimes. Yeah. And I get it because I'll, I'll tell you, hearing the story, there is a part of me deep down inside that's like, I want to try this. I mean, you know, it, I wouldn't. I'm not a very good. I'm not good at keeping a lot of lies together right, in my right. head. But I could totally see how it would be. Um, you know, we all like to be good at something. Yeah. And I think she was really good at this. Yeah. And she just felt good doing it because she's like, I'm good at it. And then she maybe felt like because I gave it away, I'm not a bad person. Mm-hmm. Because they're like people are getting hurt. They're, you know, tradespeople are losing money. And right, right. people are losing their savings. And I don't know if they ever recouped that or what happened with the money. But like she felt like she wasn't a bad person because she was giving it away. So I'm OK uh, in the long run or something. I feel like I could do it. I bet I, you could. I've, well, I've, I'm very good at keeping many lies up in the air at once, and I don't uh-huh. care about people's feelings or anything. That's like, true. I, I'm just so lazy. You're a true sociopath. Yeah. In that way. Yeah, just a lazy sociopath. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad. The worst kind. A motivated sociopath, but scary. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess a lazy sociopath is the best kind. It's the only kind you can live with. <laughs> Trust me. Well, the day after Percy was arrested, the press got a hold of the story, and they probably ran out of ink. They got so many headlines out of it. Of course, this is a big, funny, hilarious thing that Uh this lady was dressed like a man and stuff like that. It was like the story of the century. Sure. In fact, she was so ubiquitous in the headlines that one anonymous person was so fed up, they sent a very long poem about how sick and tired they were of Amy Bach (laughs) to The Observer, where it was published in full May 1909. (laughs) And it is... Hilarious. It's so good. So funny. But it is like five minutes long. So we'll finish up the story here, but please stick around. At the end of the show, we will read you the entire lugubrious lament. (laughs) So Amy went to trial at the end of May 1909 to face two counts of false pretenses, one of forgery, and one for making a false declaration under the Marriage Act. Mm, Okay. So this is not only for the sham wedding, but also that furniture fraud back in Dunedin where she sold all her employer's furniture. Right. Um, She was sentenced to two years hard labor. And at this point, she was also finally declared an habitual criminal. Okay. Um, which I'm starting to think you might do this again. (laughs) Fool me 13 times. (laughs) Shame on me. Not a 14th time. (laughs) Um, That basically meant that she would be detained in prison until, quote, such a time as the governor is convinced that she can be granted her liberty with perfect safety to the public. Okay. Um, So she immediately, dear governor, Governor. I'm Amy's uncle, Jameson (laughs) II, and I think she's great. She's going to be fine. Let her out immediately. Yours very sincere. And if you could drop her a 20 on your way out, I'll pay you back next week. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm good for it. According to the New Zealand Geographic, Amy is the first woman in New Zealand to be classified an habitual oh, criminal. Okay. And apparently at this trial, the Ottaways put in a petition to the judge for leniency on Amy. <laughs> now that tells you how likable she was, in my opinion. Like they're wow. straight up like, we still have to petition the Supreme Court to annul our daughter's marriage to you. But you're just such a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, lady. I mean, lady, right? <laughs> Go easy on him. I mean her. I mean her. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Also, you know, congratulations, women, for like, breaking the glass ceiling of habitual <laughs> criminals. Habitual criminality. <laughs> now, that same year in June, Nessie Ottaway petitioned the Supreme Court to annul her marriage, like we said. And, of course, they did right away. 
In 1910, she married a stock inspector and widower, 20 years older than herself. Now, he died in 1918, and in 1927, Nessie married again to a soldier that she'd known since he was a young boy in their childhood. During the trial, many of the people Amy had defrauded cashed in on the craze around her name, and they auctioned off Amy's wedding suit and Nessie's engagement ring to recoup their losses. So I love the whole town coming together, holding up the, hey, hey, let's get paid back by selling this shit. All right, everyone, bring me your receipts. We'll put the numbers down. We'll see what we can get. (laughs) I've got four letters from Amy's aunt. (laughs) I've got bad news for you. Now, Amy also sold some things to pay her lawyers, but her lawyers donated most of their fee to Nessie. That was nice of them. (laughs) Right. An article called Amy Box's Latest Escapade, published in the Evening Star in 1909, spends a whole paragraph talking about how Amy looked so much like a man that she could have deceived anyone. They even kind of sound like a little mad about it. (laughs) Made us sort of laugh, so we wanted to read most of this letter here. Quote, Men without knowledge of her identity would not have taken the dapper individual in bridegroom gray to be a woman. Many women indeed have turned eager eyes on less attractive men than this woman attired as a man. The way she had her hands sunk into the pockets of a light gray overcoat was the way of a man. She walked with the slight stoop of the scholar, but with a firm tread. The back of her head was a man's, from the back rim of a light-colored cap placed jauntily on the head to the collar of the overcoat. Her hair was shorn like that of a man on parade, or that of a man who gets his sixpence worth from the barber every time. (laughs) In a word, the woman was a man. Her walk was not womanly. Most men know how women walk, and this woman walked more like a man fond of easy-fitting trousers. Altogether, one could easily understand why women have been deceived by this woman. As showing how men were deceived, it is interesting to mention that the bridegroom was measured and suited at the New Zealand clothing factory, and although her petite form required nothing more than 13 and a half for collars and shirts, no one suspected anything amiss. Not even the measurer. <laughs> I am obsessed with this paragraph. They go on and on about the most random characteristics and assigning gender to the way you walk or the way you put your hands in your pockets. And they're like, the back of her head was a man's. She was even wearing a hat. Like, what the fuck? What was I supposed to think? I mean, she had a overcoat on. (laughs) I can always tell. (laughs) You fucking mess. Now, this article also goes on to say, quote, The accused, it might be mentioned, is a very temperate woman. She never drinks, but on the day of her wedding, in order to play her part, she took seven whiskeys, which, she says, nearly killed her. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, that's right. Whiskey nearly kills me right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was really committed to the part. Very committed. She was ready to drink the fuck out of whatever. Wow. I'm like, was she falling down? No wonder she crawled into bed in her suit. (laughs) She was probably (laughs) wasted. (laughs) Now, Amy spent two more years in jail, and when she was released in 1911, she moved to Mokau, where, according to a biography written by Fiona Farrell, she, quote, organized many entertainments and plays and was the life of the district. Nice. In November of 1914, Amy got married, this time, as the papers were careful to point out, as the bride. (laughs) Uh, She married a Swedish guy named Charles Edward Christofferson. And according to Fiona Farrell, 
they parted within a year because of Amy's debts. But in a Headstuff.org article called Amy Bach, the Feminine Bridegroom by Kieran Conliffe, it says that he was a heavy drinker who abandoned her after a couple of years and left her destitute. Yeah, not sure which is accurate. Those yeah. are very different stories. Right, um, right. With very different <laughs> feelings on my part. Right. <laughs> now, either way, she was still up to her old tricks. Of course. In 1917, she was fined 20 pounds for theft. And then she moved to Hamilton. And in 1931, she faced five charges of obtaining money through false pretenses. That that old, ch- she loves that charge. Of false pretenses. Yes. That's her, 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 her way of life. She was 71 years old at that point, so they just sentenced her to two years of probation on the condition that she lived in a Salvation Army home for the elderly. Now, Amy died in the year 1943, and weirdly, she is in an unmarked grave in a Pukekohe cemetery. Yeah, considering how obsessed everyone was with her mm-hmm. story, it's odd to me that they wouldn't mark her grave. But maybe, it's maybe she the... didn't have any money. We've heard before, I can't remember who I'm thinking of, but I've heard before about people who were marked who were buried in unmarked graves so that people didn't go flock to them and desecrate it and, like, turn it into a whole tourist site. It's, like, almost more respectful. Mm, Just be like, let's let this woman lay in peace here. You're like, who knows? If we put her name on it, someone's going to steal the tombstone, try to sell it (laughs) down the road. Did she die in 1943 or did a letter say she did? (laughs) So sorry, Amy is dead. Oh, Speculation Station. Yes. Amy Bach was a con the whole time. She's actually Jameson II of Wellington. (laughs) Alive and well. A sheep farmer who who put on this whole ruse of a con artist. Wow. Just to see if he could. Just to see if he could. Yeah. Percy was the real one all along. Oh. oh, my God. I love this story. Amy Bach is insane. Oh, and fascinating. So interesting. Like, again, this sort of Robin Hood tendencies. Right. All of these tiny. I mean, tiny is not really accurate because it's still in the thousands of dollars, but they're still pretty small cons. Yeah. She usually didn't keep anything. Like, she didn't have a lot of money or wealth herself. Right. She just seemed, and she was such a good, like, people loved her. Yeah. They were just like, I want to be your friend. I just think that's so interesting. She's amazing. So thank you again to Simon for this suggestion. This was a really fun uh, research project. Yeah. A really fun story to hear about. And I love doing my terrible accents. <laughs> I think it improved throughout the episode. I know it did. But then it also <laughs> probably got worse sometimes. Who knows? Look, this story ain't over. No. We have a very, a very fun poem. Important poem to read. <laughs> so let's all go down to Poetry Corner and hear the letter that this anonymous person sent to a newspaper called The Irrepressible Amy B. A Lugubrious Lament. Oh, listen to my tearful lay and kindly wipe a weep away. But watch, please, that you do not say Amy Bach. For oh, that name has got me down. Gives rise to a ferocious frown. This name obsesses all the town. Amy Bach. The daily papers fill up space by reproducing Amy's face. And everywhere these words you trace, Amy Bach. They publish with ecstatic glee long yarns about her pedigree. Their whole contents appear to be Amy Bach. They serve up columns every day, detailing Amy's winning way. They metaphorically flay Amy Bach. 
Her past career in lurid light, they place before the public sight. They don't at all object to slight Amy Bach. Though thrones may totter, empires fall, though pestilence abroad may crawl, the dailies put before them all Amy Bach. Though weighty cablegrams intrude, the dailies think it would be rude because of these things to exclude Amy Bach. When in the car you chance to ride, it makes you feel like homicide to hear folk mutter loud with pride, <laughs> Amy Bach. And even when you pay your fare, the conductor with a far off stare exclaims, as you are well aware, Amy Bach. Again, in desperation, say, you go perchance to see the play the pros drag in, in subtle way, Amy Bach. So there you find no rest or cure. It adds to pains that you endure to find they've named the overture Amy Buck. <laughs> to seek relief, we'll say maybe, you go a-fishing on the sea to banish with celerity Amy Buck. Tis unavailing all the same. You feel, well, anything but tame to meet a yacht that owns the name Amy Buck. In frantic frenzy, neath the strain, you go to save your tottering brain a modest stimulant to drain, Amy Bach. Alas, <laughs> you feel you're doubly banned to find, tis more than you can stand, that they've renamed your favorite brand, Amy Bach. No! <laughs> you go to buy a Sunday tie. The shopman looks you in the eye and answers, yes, sir, will you try Amy Bach? <laughs> And with insinuating smile, he says, it is the latest style. We've named it, as tis free from guile, Amy Bach. When traveling on a railway train, you find tis absolutely vain to try and banish from your brain Amy Bach. For as the wheels go round and round, and even in the pistons pound, you hear but one incessant sound, Amy Buck. Again, for sweet relief to search, you pay a visit to a church, <laughs> attempting to leave in the lurch, Amy Bach. Alas, you find no antidote, because the organ's every note drones out the words as if by rote, Amy Bach. <laughs> Again, in horror, off you fly with murder gleaming in your eye. <laughs> There'd be fierce deeds if you got nigh, Amy Buck. <laughs> Damn. Then, on your homeward way, you steer. But when you get there, sad and drear, these fatal words fall on your ear. Amy Buck. The very household cat can do, not else but sit and sadly mew, yowling, or so it seems to you, Amy Bach. And in the rooster's scornful crow, there seems to be that name you know, too well, that name that makes you low, Amy Bach. <laughs> You're sitting quietly on your own, thinking o'er grief with piteous moan, when loudly resounds the telephone. <gasps> Amy Buck? <laughs> Who's there? In fearful ire you shout. A voice replies, I say, no doubt you've heard the latest news about Amy Buck? Oh, ring off, you savagely reply, says young sweet central. Oh, oh my, your language is enough to try Amy Buck. <laughs> you really mustn't talk so. Hush, you're making all the central blush. With muttered curse, away you brush. 
Amy Bach. The town clock's chimes when out they ring Cause you to swear like anything Because it seems as if they sing Amy Bach. And talk of singing Twon't be long before we'll get Although tis wrong The very latest comic song Amy Bach. <laughs> and Amy's face and figure fair on picture postcards everywhere are spread abroad. You cannot scare Amy Bach. The postman calls. You think he's got important letters. He has not. Tis but a postcard. Oh, great Scott. Amy Bach. <laughs> <laughs> on land and sea, on earth and air, yes, all creation everywhere is saying to that fact you'd swear. Amy Buck. <laughs> and in the rustle of the trees, and borne upon a balmy breeze, is but one sound which doesn't please. Amy Buck. <laughs> From Cape Maria to the bluff, the only talk, and quite enough, is all the same unnerving stuff. Amy Buck. Wherever you bend your weary feet, you get this same most doubtful treat. Oh, nothing that you know can beat Amy Bach. Oh, legislation should be framed without delay, <laughs> or so tis claimed, to quickly suppress this subject named Amy Bach. If not, tis easy to foresee that unto all eternity this only topic there will be Amy Bach. The end. <laughs> that is seriously is, like Hark the Raven. <laughs> seri this is a man at the end of his rope <laughs> who could not take one more article. Uh, this is how I felt about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Oh, I was definitely <laughs> like, thinking that as I was typing it out. Oh my God. <laughs> this guy, this is amazing. It is so long. He, he really could he not. Went for it. Stop. He was like, and more. There's more to say. And if I hear this name one more goddamn time. The postman comes. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> the cat is saying it. I can the hear it everywhere. Like this man is going fully nuts. Oh, oh, I, I, love, wish... I also love that they printed it in full. In full. Like the <laughs> amount of space this took because up. Because it's the greatest poem of a so good. New Zealand generation. <laughs> this is the Edgar Allan Poe of his time. It really is. I do love the stanza where he says, oh, we're going to get a comic song. And I'm like, aren't you writing that right now? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is that you doing yeah, that? Yeah. He's like, look what you made me do. <laughs> Here we are singing my comic song. Oh, what a beautiful. Oh. I wish it weren't anonymous. I know. I want, I want a credit. This person deserves to be in the, so in the poetry books. It's like a weird owl. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. I love it. I love I'm it. so glad I found it. It was linked yes. in the head stuff article that we uh, uh, used as a source, and I'm so happy that I went and looked at it because yeah. it just cracked me up the uh -huh. whole time I was reading it, and I knew we'd have fun performing it. So <sighs> great. Oh, man. Well, Amy thanks. <laughs> thanks for sitting through it. I know you're sick of hearing that name, too, by now. I know I am. Probably. Um, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, please let us know what you thought of I this know. story. I hope you enjoyed as much so as we much did fun. this insane con woman. Yes. Thank you again, Simon. Yes. Uh, for sending this away. Uh, it's so good. And please send us your suggestions yep. for future episodes. Obviously, we're, we're, we're getting so many good ones from y'all. 
Yes, so that great. we would never know yes. about. So yes. please keep them coming. Yeah, reach out to us. We're uh, ridicromance at gmail.com. Right, or we're on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at, oh great, it's Eli. And the show is at ridicromance. Can't wait to hear from you all again, and we'll bring you another episode soon. Love you. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.